Faithfulness is one of those divine attributes that we tend to take for granted. We cling to God's grace, and we are extremely thankful for his mercy. But when it comes to uh, God's faithfulness, we just kind of expect that to keep happening. Because faithfulness, by definition, is kind of routine, right? It's expected. It's predictable. It just happens. If you're a fan of Philip Yancey's writings, you're probably familiar of the, with the story of his uh, visit to Yellowstone National Park. He and his wife were uh, sitting there having a meal at the Old Faithful Inn, uh, waiting for Old Faithful, the geyser, to uh, come up. And there was a clock in the, in the uh, dining room there letting them know how much time was left until the next uh, geyser would show because it's so regular they could they could time it and clock it out and and uh, so they noticed when it got down to about a minute or two everybody just got up from their tables and went over to the windows to look out on this beautiful scene of the geyser uh, blowing its steam and uh so it did. It, it happened. It happened right on time, and it was just amazing, and they were in awe. And, and he said he looked over his shoulder, and uh, as soon as all of the diners went over to the windows, just on cue, the, the wait staff and the busboys all came over and started clearing dishes or refilling drinks or bringing food out. And uh, he looked back a couple of times. He said, here we are. We're ooing and aahing at this incredible wonder that God has made in all of its uniqueness. And not once, not once did any of these busboys or waitstaff glance out the window. Even when they were done with their task and went back to their station. His conclusion was this, that old faithful, grown entirely too familiar, had lost its power to impress them. Sometimes that happens with us and God, doesn't it? We take his faithfulness for granted, and it loses its power to change us as we walk with Jesus Christ. It loses that draw on us to call us to a faithful, loving obedience. It loses that draw on us to expand our minds and to draw us into greater worship. The problem is not God's faithfulness. The problem is our mindfulness of God's faithfulness. That we don't stay aware of it. And if we're going to have an accurate understanding of God, we've got to be familiar with his faithfulness, but not become so familiar that we just take it for granted. So today in, in Daniel chapter 8, the 8th chapter in the book of Daniel, we're going to look at the second vision that Daniel has. He has four visions here in chapter 7 through 12. And this second vision is a prophecy that is future to Daniel. And it will come true within 400 years. So it's historic to us. It's taken place for us. But this particular vision, this particular prophecy, not only is future to Daniel and fulfilled, but then it takes on a greater and further prophetic element that is still future to us. 
And I think that's amazing that we get this double fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, we know that takes place throughout Scripture, right? Uh, there are numerous times that there's a double fulfillment or there's a gap between the fulfillment in, in uh, different prophets. Uh, but this one is given to us by Daniel. And, and what it strikes me with is that, that we want to be mindful and aware of God's faithfulness, that he does keep his word. And because he keeps his word, we can have confidence in him. We can trust him and we should be drawn to worship him in a greater degree. We're going to look at this prophecy. Look at the historic fulfillment, verses 1 through 14. We get the vision, verses 15 to 26. We pretty much get an interpretation of that, and we get to look at another little horn. Not the same little horn as last week on the immediate prophecy, but then that's what the second prophecy is. The double fulfillment shows up with the Antichrist toward the end times. This double fulfillment will take place in about 168 B.C. through 165, and then at the end times, just before Christ returns. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 8. And like I said, verses 1 through 14 give us the vision. And what I see here is that God's faithfulness is revealed in prophecy. God's faithfulness is revealed in prophecy. If you've studied prophecy, if you've studied scripture at all, if you've read any apologetics, you know that over 300 Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. They were fulfilled in his life and ministry on earth, over 300. That's just incredible, isn't it? Given the number of authors, given the centuries that God's word was written over, guided by the Holy Spirit, and through God's sovereign work, those 300 prophecies have come true. And that gives us great confidence because fulfilled prophecy draws out the faith of God's people. Fulfilled prophecy always draws out the faith, increases our confidence, deepens our trust. Well, Daniel starts off in chapter 8 with the setting. And what it is, I believe he's in Babylon, but he's taken in this vision to a city called Susa. Susa was one of the capitals. It was the capital of Elam, and, and then it became the capital of uh, one of the capitals of Persia. But he's taken there in this vision. It's the same city where 80 years later, Esther would have an impact. And then over a little over 100 years later, Nehemiah would leave from there to go back to Jerusalem and build the walls of the city. So it's a well-known place. It's about 200 miles east of Babylon. And the setting, the time is 551 B.C. So this is just two years after the first vision. Belshazzar is still on the throne of Babylon. And Daniel gives us that setting. And then in verses 3 and 4, he tells us a little bit about the vision. Here's where it starts, verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns that was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. In ancient times, everyone recognized the country by their beast, by their guardian spirit. And for Persia... The guardian spirit was the ram. 
And even when kings went into battle, they took the head of a ram into battle with them. And so when he says ram, the, to the ancient readers, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He's talking about Persia here. Daniel's going to later confirm that when the angel gives him uh, an interpretation of the vision. We read later in the chapter in verse 20 this, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Media and Persia. The first horn is Media. The second horn is Persia. That's why it's the longer of the two, because it was the stronger of the empire. And we know that it was much greater in territory than Babylon. Then we read this in verse 4. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. The empire of Persia pushed out in three directions. And so when we go back to chapter 7 and we think about the description of the bear with the three ribs, that's what he's talking about here. These three ribs represent the three directions that Persia pushed out in and enlarged its territory. It went west, north, and south and became the largest world empire at that time. Now we have what appears to be a, a professional wrestling match. Because now we're going to have a goat appear on the scene and take on the ram. And that's what we get in verses 5 through 8. In this vision, the goat represents Greece. And the goat is, uh, or the first king is Alexander the Great. And then he dies and he is uh, followed by four of his generals and they get the territory. So let me read verse 7. And we'll pick up with uh, Greece. I saw him, the, the goat, the, the uh, Alexander the Great, come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. There were three key battles between 334 and 331 B.C. that took place between Alexander the Great, between Greece, and between Persia. And it was the final one that he actually hurled Persia to the ground, trampled it, and took over and became the greatest empire. He gained the leadership of the known world. And we read this in verse 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. This is Alexander the Great. He considered himself divine, and he even made his soldiers bow down to him. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Alexander the Great, in three years, amazingly, and we were told last chapter, it wasn't by his own doing that he had help from God. He takes over the known world. He has the greatest empire now. He was a tactical genius. Even though Persia had a huge army, had all kinds of uh, warfare elements that were new to that time, including war, ele war elephants brought in from the east, he defeated Persia. But he was a very vain man. He, he was a boastful man. He considered himself divine. And, and one night he has this great fever and a drunken party and he dies. He dies at age 33. It takes him about 20 years 
for the kingdom of Greece to work things out, but the land is divided four ways between four different generals who become four kings over four kingdoms. And we have a slide here, I think. Do I have that on here? Oh, let me go down and read verses 21 and 22 uh, first, because the, the uh, Gabriel also uh, interprets um, who the goat is. He says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So there we have God's prophecy, his prophetic word. It would take place uh, in 334 to 331 B.C. and then 20 years of dividing. And then we have these four kingdoms that are set up. There is Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and then Seleucus. And it is out of the Seleucid dynasty that the eighth king will come and he will become, he will arise out of that kingdom and he will be called the little horn here in chapter eight. He was based basically in Syria and he moved eastward toward India. So that was one of the four kings. You can see how the territory of the kingdom of the empire of Greece was split up among those four kings. Seleucus, eighth king in the Seleucid dynasty. And he's referred to as the little horn, and he moved rapidly to gain territory. Now, the little horn, we know historically, and historians as well as biblical scholars agree that he was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. His name meant uh, God manifest or divine manifestation. So again, like Alexander, he's taking on deity for himself. He's the third kingdom in Daniel's dreams and visions. And his reign began in 175 B.C. And it would last till about 164 B.C. So here we are from 331 down to 175 B.C. And we read in verse 10 that uh, he's already attacking the Jews. This little horn grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to earth, and it trampled them down. So he attacked the Jews. The Jews were known as the host of heaven. They were known as God's children, his stars. And so that symbolism refers to the Jews, and we get this uh, hint already that he is going to attack the Jews and go after them and, and seek to destroy them. He's going to begin to persecute them. They are God's children. So that's the attitude of Antiochus Epiphanes. He is wicked. He is deceitful. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything he can to destroy the Jews and lift himself up. In 168 BC, there was a, an event where he was rebuffed. He was defeated by Rome at Alexandria in a, in a small battle, and it made him extremely angry. And so he decided he was going to unify his empire and he was going to make everything Greek. And so what that meant for the Jews was you could have no more Jewish religion. You could not read Torah. You could not offer sacrifice. 
sacrifices. You could not practice circumcision. These were all things that he brought in for the Jews as well as every other religion. There would only be Greek religion. And he made that known. He was going to outlaw every other religion and preferably stamp out the Jews. And so what he does is he sends a general over to Jerusalem and to lay siege to Jerusalem. He makes it look like he comes in peace. But he takes Jerusalem and he slaughters 40,000 Jews. And he takes 10,000 Jews in slavery. So this was the attitude of Antiochus Epiphanes. He considered himself deity and divine, and he wanted to squash out, trample out everything else. And the Jews were competitors in the religious realm. So he went after them. We also know that he seized Jerusalem. And we read this in verse 11. This little horn magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Commander of the host is God himself. He is the commander of the Jews, the host, the stars, the children of God. And we see Antiochus Epiphanes doing a couple of different things here. He's going to remove the regular sacrifices from God. If he attacks the temple and he attacks the sacrificial system, then he's attacking Yahweh himself. And the place of his sanctuary is thrown down. He magnifies himself to be equal with Yahweh. And one of the things that he did was he minted coins, and these coins have been found by archaeologists that had imprinted on them the Greek words uh, Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. The Jews behind his back called him Antiochus Epimenes, a little play on the words which meant the madman. He went after the Jews, and so he looted the temple of treasures, the golden lampstand, the golden altar of sacrifice. Everything he could get his hands on, he threw down. And then he profaned the temple. He attacked the site of worship, and he erected an idol of Zeus there in the temple, and he offered a pig to it to profane the temple. And he took the broth from the pig and, and had them spread that all over the temple to desecrate the Jews, and their worship of God. Verse 12 gives us a little further information, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So God had given this king time to prosper, to succeed. He would fling truth to the ground. He would burn the Torah. They could not study it. This episode became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation. And in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus would tie this into future prophecy, to the time of Antichrist. And so we began to get these hints that the prophecy here for Daniel that would take place just within three, four hundred years, also has a future fulfillment, a double fulfillment. Well, the angels discussed in verse 13 how long this was to take place. 
And God tells them 2,300 days, a little over six years, that the Jews will be persecuted this way by Antiochus Epiphanes. The little horn was opposed to God. He was the little horn of the third kingdom, but he's a prototype of the little horn of the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, the one that rose up among the ten kingdoms, the ten kings, and subdued three initially, and then took over and eventually took over the world, as we saw last week. The one who would wage war against God's people. The one who would deceive and be extremely popular. Antiochus Epiphanes was thrown out by Judas Maccabees and his sons when they cleaned and restored the temple, December 25th, 165 B.C., and that is the celebration called Feast of Lights or Hanukkah that the Jews still celebrate today. That was the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. God's word was given to Daniel in 551 B.C. It would come true in 331 B.C. And then in about 310 B.C., when the generals were finally set with their kingdoms, and then again in 168 to 165 B.C., the events of this vision were carried out according to God's word. He kept his word, and he delivered on his promises, and prophecy was fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled strengthens our faith and gives us hope. We can take God at his word. And in verses 15 to 26, technically interpretation of the vision, but we learn more about this little horn especially. We see that God's faithfulness makes prophecy a light in the darkness. A light in the darkness. Prophecy gives us hope because we're confident that God is in control, that he is working out his plan for his glory and for our good, and that he is sovereign enough to be able to do that. He is powerful enough to do that. There is nothing that can stop him from leading nations and kings and rulers and accomplishing his will. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, referred to the prophetic word, not just Daniel's, all the prophetic word, but he referred to it as this. We have the prophetic word made more sure as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises. God's faithfulness makes prophecy a light in the darkness. The morning star in the physical world is the planet Venus. It's there in the, in the, the uh, pre-dawn sky, and it signals the arrival of a new dawn, a new day. And when we look to the future, we see at the morning star, Jesus Christ himself signals at his return of uh, the rapture for the saints, the dawn of a new day, the day of the Lord, which will take place through the from the tribulation through the millennial reign. All of this ties together. And, and, and so we look back at Daniel and we say, well, this is a light in the darkness. Peter reminds his readers to give the Old Testament priority, to give attention to it and to the apostles' teaching, because until the Lord returns, that's the only light available. Therefore, as we read Daniel's words, we have the light of God's word to us. We can count on God's word as a light in the darkness, because God is faithful. 
Well, the interpretation of the vision starts off with Daniel confused in verse 15 and 16. He seeks help. God, we hear the voice of God talking to an angel. Turns out it's Gabriel. God asks Gabriel to explain the vision to him, and he explains that this prophecy applies to the end of time. We read this in verse 19. Gabriel said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the ends. He uses that phrase twice, once in verse 17 and once in verse 19. The appointed, the end of time, the time of the end. This is a phrase that was used by Christ in Luke 21. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. We referred to the end of the times of the Gentiles, the last days, the end times. Again, prophecy. It's also used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, where it refers to Jesus Christ and uh, his coming. So we know that it takes us all the way to the end of times, the last days when Christ shall return. I think there are two other clues that show us that this is a double fulfillment. The first one, of course, we saw Jesus apply the language to the end times and the Olivet Discourse with the abomination of desolation. But there are two more primary clues. The first is the, the phrase, the time of the end, which we said Jesus used in Luke 21, verse 24 used also in, in Daniel chapter 12. Secondly, we see the similarity between the little horn of the third kingdom and the little horn of the fourth kingdom. And we see that in verses 23 to 25. In fact, those verses look very similar to what we saw last week in chapter 7, verses 24 to 26. The, the similarity is unmistakable. There's a, a clear parallel between the two little horns here. And the conclusion is that we see Antiochus Epiphanes as a real and horrible king who is to steal, kill, and destroy. But we also see him as a terrible prototype of the final little horn, the, the uh, Antichrist himself to come. Gabriel applies the prophecy directly to Antiochus. Scripture re reveals a double fulfillment by giving us these clues that the prophecy also applies to the Antichrist of the New Testament. Prophecy has a double fulfillment here, partially in Antiochus Epiphanes and completely in Antichrist. So let's look at Daniel 8, verses 23 to 25, and, and what we see here is an emphasis on the evil character of Antiochus and of the Antichrist. We get some of his traits. We see this in verse... 23, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Antiochus was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. He came up in the latter days of their period, of their era. He rose to power near the end of the Greek era of rule. We're told that he would be insolent or literally with a fierce countenance, and we've seen that in his attacks on Jerusalem and on the Jews at large. He would be skilled in intrigue, likely be a brilliant person who was deceitful 
as well, capable of solving hard problems, perhaps even an acquaintance with sorcery and the occult, which would be normal in that day. We have more insight, not only to Antiochus here, but to the Antichrist in the last day. Someone who will not be dressed with a pitchfork and horns, but someone who will have great appeal and likely be brilliant and have tremendous charisma. Verse 24, we get a little bit more. Daniel notes that his power is not his own. His power will be mighty, but not his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. This means he's going to have great power due to satanic control. Everything he does is opposed to God. It was true of Antiochus in his inhumane treatment of the Jews and the profaning and desecrating of the temple. In Revelation 12, 3, we read this, that the dragon, Satan himself, will give the Antichrist his power and his seat and great authority. He will give him the power to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what he will be known for in his reign as he takes over the world. Antichrist will be far worse than Antiochus Epiphanes. And Jesus said as much when he gave a warning to the Jews, Jewish believers in future time of tribulation, adding that if the days were not shortened, there would be no flesh saved in Matthew 24. We are getting a description that was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, but we're also beginning to get greater insight into Antichrist and his work in the world. We can trust God's word because it is faithful. And then we see in verse 25 that he does promise peace and security. Through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many people while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Antiochus did this with Jerusalem in the destruction. He promised peace and safety as he came to them. And then he brought sudden destruction. That history is given in the book of 1 Maccabees. We're told that the Antichrist in 1 Thessalonians 5 will promise peace and safety and then destroy. Neither one will die by human hand. Antiochus died of grief and depression and illness in Babylon following defeat in battle. And the Antichrist will be defeated. When his armies are defeated by Jesus Christ at his return, he will be cast into the lake of fire in judgment. Clearly, this passage looks ahead to Antiochus Epiphanes, and it looks further into the future to the Antichrist. Daniel could not know all of that. He couldn't even know that it was going to be Antiochus Epiphanes. But we can see how it lines up in our day. Daniel took it by faith because God had proven his faithfulness to him all along. We take it by faith. We have it proven on the prophecy regarding the initial part of the prophecy regarding Antiochus Epiphanes 
and we take it to be true for the second part because God is faithful to his word of Antichrist and the way it lines up with New Testament prophecy as well. God's faithfulness means that we can depend upon his word. His word is a light in the darkness. His word came true in Antiochus, and we look to a time when Jesus will return to defeat evil. It's a time of more judgment. It's not a fun time. It's a time that we believe the church will be raptured, all those who have placed their faith in Christ. But Jesus will return. He will triumph over Antichrist and evil. God's faithfulness provides a light in dark times, and he gives us hope. Finally, his faithfulness ignites our faith. And we see this in verse 27, and you might find this curious as we look at Daniel's words here. But in the final verse, we discover that Daniel does not clearly understand the prophecy. Now, that's not that unusual, is it? Not many of us understand all the prophecies of Scripture. And certainly the very disciples of Jesus Christ on that six-month trip to Jerusalem from Galilee, going to the cross, three different times Jesus told them, I'm going, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die, be buried and rise again. And initially they fought him on it, and then they became scared, and then they were just too fearful to even ask a question about it. They never understood that until after the fact. Well, Daniel admits here that he doesn't understand the complete prophecy. This is what we see in verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Can you imagine being given a vision like that that's so interactive? You're talking to an angel to explain it to you. He is worn out. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision. It stayed with him, and there was none to explain it. Daniel doesn't fully understand it, but he takes God at his word. He does respond to the revelation. Did you see that phrase in there? He says, I carried on the king's business. I carried on what God would have me do. He was serving King Belshazzar, but he was ultimately serving the Lord. The Lord had put him there for such a time as this. And so the question that you and I have, whether we fully understand prophecy or not, is are we carrying on with the king's business? Are we mindfully aware of God's faithfulness? fully assured that we can trust his word and willing to respond to him with a loving obedience? Are we drawn to worship him in greater ways? Is our trust deepened because we have seen his word prove true? We have claimed promises. We have seen God deliver on his promises. We have seen him show up. But the question remains, are we carrying on the king's business? So many times we want to study prophecy, and, and we just want to really have our brains tickled and, and try to sort it all out and figure it all out, and we have all kinds of speculations. And that's fine when it falls under the study of God's Word. 
But we don't ever want to be a people that just fill our minds with knowledge. We want to be a people that carry on with the king's business, whether we fully understand scripture or not, because all of us, all of us know far more than we ever obey. And that's what we're called to do, to respond to Jesus Christ in loving obedience. When we are aware of God's faithfulness, we never take it for granted. We do find it impressive. And we are fully aware, we're mindful of God's word at all times. And we're anticipating it to come true. We're anticipating his goodness. We're anticipating him increasing our joy as we carry on with the king's business. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for this second vision of Daniel tucked away in Daniel chapter 8.